Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech with me, Rich, and my co-host, Jennifer. This week, we're talking to um, Gemma Milne, who is a writer and researcher and the author of Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It, which was published in April 2020. Hi, Gemma. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm very excited to, uh, to be one of your first guests on this. How exciting. Yeah, so maybe the best place to start is just with more of an introduction to you. So if you kind of tell us a bit more about who you are and kind of what you do as well. Sure. So um, right now I'm a a PhD researcher at UCL, as well as being a writer, podcaster, broadcaster, one of those people, um, all around science (laughs) and tech and society. Um, So my PhD specifically is focusing on the ethics of corporate futurism, whether it's giving actual insights about the future, whether it's teaching people how to look at the future, so on and so forth. What does that mean specifically in in a corporate context nowadays? And then in terms of my writing, I'm interested in basically the intersection between science, technology and society. I specifically am interested in what some people call deep tech. So things like biotechnology, quantum computing, technologies that are really part of big world infrastructure. So things like farming and energy, but always kind of bringing that back to what is it we're seeing about technology, hence my focus on hype and what impact is that having in a sort of broader political, economic, social context. How did you end up here? Is are, is your background more in the tech side or the ethics philosophy side? Um, probably neither. Um, my degree's in maths. Um, and then after I finished a maths degree, I did what a lot of math grads do and get, you know, uh, tempted to go join the city. So I went and worked at JP Morgan for a couple of months. Didn't last very long, decided it wasn't for me, investment banking. And I then Googled creative business jobs, London, because I thought like I've done the math thing, let's try the creative thing. So I also do a lot of art and music and stuff on the side. Ended up in advertising. So of course, when you Google creative business jobs, London, you're going to end up in advertising. So I worked uh, for Ogilvy and Mather, originally I was in um, on the Amex team in account management. And then I got a, a really interesting opportunity to move over into their corporate innovation team. So I was the, the tech innovation strategist um, for Ogilvy Labs. And my job is essentially to go and collaborate with startups, find interesting outsiders, do research reports, basically anything, keeping my finger on the pulse of what was going on in, in tech. And that was kind of how I ended up being in the sort of, shall we say, startup scene. Spent a lot of time traveling, going to a lot of conferences, meeting a lot startups and then helping them collaborate with Ogilvy and their various clients. Of course, Ogilvy has clients in every single industry. So it was a quite cool job because my my job was basically just to know what was going on in all industries in terms of startups and tech. So it was it was quite a fun job. Um, and then in 2016, they decided to shut the innovation team. Very innovative move by the company. So I was <laughs> made redundant. And um, I'd, I don't know, I mean, I guess by the time that, I, that happened at Ogilvy, I was really interested more in the kind of what was happening in, with the science and tech, more so than what was happening in advertising. So, you know, I started a podcast called, um, it was called Science Disrupt at the time, it's now called Radical Science. It was all about sort of changing the way we do things in academia, trying to make science better, shall we say. And so because I had that, and then I'd had this job in corporate innovation once people found out that they they cut the team, I got approached to do various different things from innovation consulting to then being asked to write for various outlets, you know, can you come be the tech expert or whatever and write a think piece? Um, and I thought, oh, this is a 
interesting way of getting my ideas out into the world if people are asking me to write that's cool so I just kind of really doubled down on that and really pushed towards uh focusing less on I guess corporate innovation and advertising specifically and more looking at what's happening in in tech and specifically in deep tech but that sort of that was 2016 so ever since then I've done various things from being a scout for VC funds to um, advising European Commission on like what they should invest in in terms of deep tech and then of course writing for various different outlets, hosting podcasts, all sorts. And then of course, wrote this book. So, and now doing the PhD. So that's my, my new, <laughs> my new thing, I guess. <laughs> you kind of fell into, or it found you being a tech storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's funny, you, you can always like, you know, do these, uh, I guess, weave these stories uh, backwards, right? That doesn't, you know, at the time it wouldn't have felt like that. But I mean, from, from a young age, I've always been interested in science and tech and I've always been obsessed with trying to get people as obsessed with science and tech as I was. I mean, I studied maths and I find maths totally fascinating. I did pure maths, it's not applied. And so really kind of fascinated by patterns and the wonders of maths and all this. And I don't know, I always wanted to try and get my mum to understand why Euler's theorem was the best theorem in the world. I've still not been successful at that. But the point is, I guess I've always been interested in telling the stories of science and tech, but it wasn't until I started working in investment banking and then advertising that you started being like, hmm, it's not so rosy what's going on in science and tech. And there's a different angle here. And actually to understand science and tech, we actually really need to understand business. We really need to understand media. We really need to understand um, after that kind of thinking more about politics. So, um, but then because of all these various different work experiences that I've had, perhaps now not writing at it from a perspective of being a science student, being excited by it and then wanting to be a journalist, but rather going, whoa, this, there's a lot going on in the real world we really need to try and make sense of this. And there's a lot missing from the way we tell these stories. And of course, mm-hmm. writing a book on hype was kind of the, the culmination of that sort of unease about the way we tell these stories. I always say that if we're building the future, what is the future we're building and how are we translating it so everyone understands it? Because everything becomes kind of a locked box and that's scary if everyone's participating in tech and it's in our bodies. It's very intimate now, isn't it? Right, exactly. And I think that one of the biggest areas of hype is the fact that this idea that science and tech is too difficult or only for certain people, um, something that you shouldn't really bother paying attention to um, if you haven't studied it or you're not a space nerd or something like that. And I think there's a real perception out there that is fueled by the way, by a lot of science media that does this kind of nerdery, isn't science and tech so cool, the geeks rule the world, like these kind of narratives, I think are really damaging because you're not creating an environment that people feel comfortable having conversations. I mean, having something like fusion energy or quantum computing on the news, for a lot of people, that's completely inaccessible in terms of going, well, what, what does that mean for me? What are the politics of this? You know, what different groups should I be supporting or not supporting what sits with my ethics and values instead we're doing an explainer on how the sun works or something like that which is important but we're missing all of this other stuff that arguably I think is far more important for inclusion and for not just inclusion that sounds so woolly for actually having great stuff being built that's informed by real people as opposed to fanatics or those that are only in the industry. Just to kind of drill down as well, to kind of talk a bit more about your book, you sort of touched on it. What sort of things were you sort of seeing or thinking about or like, yeah, looking at that sort of really gave you inspiration for it and sort of, yeah, made you sort of feel like it was a important thing to write about and produce a book on? 
Sure. Um, so my book's called Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. Um, my publisher always says I should name it as well, by the way. So uh, it's not just you guys uh, reminding me. So thank you. So um, it, yeah, it's as it says in the tin, it's all about the role that hype plays in science and tech. And the reason I wanted to write in the first place was coming sort of from a space of frustration um, in the sense that I felt there were do- there's a lot of dominant uh, narratives around certain types of technologies or even technology as a whole in society Mm -hmm. and some of those narratives are have elements of truth so you know just to be clear my book's about hype not about misinformation which is different you know lying and hype are different things so this element of truth means that these narratives get repeated they get kind of amplified utilized for various different means but at the same time they blinker people from I guess seeing a full fuller picture or the system that kind of works underneath them so an example would be robots are going to steal your job for instance for AI or you know we're working to cure cancer that for me is a narrative that is very problematic and very various different levels for starters there's not really such thing as a cure for all cancer second of all cancer is many different things third of all like it it can bring hope when it should oh there's so many different things there's a whole chapter in cancer in the book but so it was coming from that space of being like why you know i'm sitting at a dinner table or i go to a party and i say oh i'm a tech and science writer and someone goes oh what do you think about the robot stealing jobs and you're going i'm glad that you're like hearing narratives and that tech isn't this thing that's not accessible at all to you but if that's the limit as to what you're hearing you're not really getting to take part right you're getting this this narrative kind of put on you and of course that's not just from the public it was also you know being a you know a writer who was writing about startups being pitched by startups all the time going to conferences and listening to people on stage saying things that you know at the end of the day people repeat and get written about and so on and so forth I kind of realized that I needed to say something a bit more deeply meaningful about the fact that hype actually plays you know a role that in some ways is positive and is maybe not positive it's just needed there's a reality to it we're never going to get rid of it that you cannot bust it forever so it ends up being a book a bit more about critical thinking and how to find deeper system stories there's nine chapters each in a different area of um, science and tech you know fusion energy cancer farming uh quantum computing commercialization <laughs> space there's even the, the final chapters on the search for alien life for instance so and i just ordered it on amazon so good for yes. you you've convinced yes. me though nine <laughs> chapters seems very little for the <laughs> topics you're holding so i'm yeah. hoping it translates for a lay person like me that may oh, yeah. write about tech but nine chapters sounds consumable a chapter explaining what the heck is quantum computing because right I don't know. All right. <laughs> I really wanted it to be, I didn't want this to be for people that, that were already really deep in these uh, areas and only for them. So there's a reason I chose nine chapters across nine different areas. I thought, well, if you're an expert in one of them, you're not going to understand the others. That's, you know, that is the point of being a, a deep expert. At the same time, if you are a generalist in some ways like I am, you're not going to ha- be able to have the depth that I've got from researching the book. So they're still going to get something. And then of course, if you're, if you consider yourself a totally lay person, although I assume anyone who kind of follows the news will know something about each of these at least heard of them each of these um, areas of technology then hopefully instead of it being like an explainer you get a little bit of what this is but actually I wanted to give people the context as to why it was important and hopefully you read the chapter and then you're able to sort of follow the news as opposed to it being like this is how quantum computing works and you're kind of like all right now what like when are we actually going to get you know them are we going to have them in our homes is that you know that's a question that gets asked often that if you read the chapter you kind of realize why that's you know it answers it to some degree but also talks about the the politics of it and money flows and the difference between private and public funding in this year these areas and how the structures of academia itself can mean that the development of these technologies can be um 
hindered or moved too fast or so on and so forth. So I didn't want it to just be a like a lesson, but rather a feel closer to journalism or closer that would give you that those tools to then critically think for yourself. So one of my favourite chapters of the book that I think approaching the book like for the first time I, I probably wouldn't have necessarily leapt out at me uh, if I was looking through the contents was the chapter on batteries actually because yeah, I think everybody it, um, says that <laughs> everybody uh, says that it, it, so I think it does a quite a, it, it kind of really looks at sort of one of the main issues especially in sort of hardware and software about the sort of balancing act I guess and kind of how hype obscures that which I think is you know one of the most fundamental aspects of hype but also like one of the things you sort of have to contend with as well just in kind of comms and marketing in tech as well uh, I was wondering if you could sort of talk a bit more about kind of that that sort of field and and what you found interesting sure. about it Sure. So a um, funny story that I actually originally had that as the first chapter of the book. I wanted to open with batteries. My publisher was like, you can't open with batteries. You will lose everyone if they see the first chapter of your book is on batteries. And I was like, but they're so fascinating. They're like, they're not going to know that unless they read it. You know, I was like, all right, fine. So and the, the first chapter is now food, which is, uh, I suppose, easier to relate to. Um, yeah, the reason I kind of focused on batteries itself, as opposed to the um, related technologies, which the chapter is actually slightly more about is, uh, which is electric vehicles and uh, renewables, which are, you know, in some ways, slightly more clickbaity topics that people might be have a bit more interest in, particularly electric vehicles and people like Elon Musk, is because batteries is kind of the, um, it's a centerpiece in both of these areas. And without, quote unquote, being able to solve or wrestle with or understand uh, the world of batteries, renewables and electric vehicles and, and devices and all sorts don't really make sense. You know, you have to be able to understand batteries to understand those industries and kind of what's going on to some degree. So I wanted to sort of drill down into um, into that hoping that it would allow people to explore these other fields. Some people have heard about the issues with renewables. So for instance, if solar panels, they only work when it's sunny, obviously. So what do you do with the energy that you get during the day when you don't need it, when your house is warm, and then you want to use it at night when there's no sun? Of course, you need a battery to be able to store that um, energy and then discharge it as and when. And there's there's big issues around, you know, whether it's wind or solar or all sorts, batteries kind of unlock the power of renewables in so many different ways. Um, and then with electric vehicles, the battery is the most expensive component of the car. So when you look at, um, you know, the sort of market dynamics of electric vehicles and so on and so forth, you really have to consider the role of the battery, the type of battery used. Um, but when you start looking at how batteries are made, the business of batteries, who is funding battery development in terms of uh, geopolitics, you start opening up issues around human rights in terms of mining. So particularly places like Democratic Republic of Congo, where a lot of cobalt is mined. Um, there's also lithium mines in various different places where we have things like child labor. There's, you know, various different conflicts that opens up the cause of these minerals. So, you know, opens up a lot of questions around human rights. Also opens up questions around, as I said, geopolitics with China, as one of the, the place in the world for this kind of nailed batteries and electric vehicles and is now supplying other places. So what does it mean if you kind of have a lot of power geopolitically because you can supply the central component of what's needed for uh, modern, sustainable life? And it also opens up questions around, you know, this this sort of hypey concept that you hear a lot about in, in batteries is this idea of like finding the holy grail of batteries so you, you see uh, if you follow battery news <laughs> which not everyone <laughs> does but if you do you'll see you know this researcher has come up with this new alloy or whatever that's the holy grail of batteries or this new way of doing the anode that's the holy grail of batteries or a new whatever 
But it misses this, what you touched on earlier on, Richard, this idea of balancing act. So when you start looking at what do you actually need for a battery, for instance, what you need in a phone battery, you're going to need it to be light. You're going to need to be inexpensive. Whereas a battery that sits beside a hospital that holds stored renewable energy and discharges it when it's needed doesn't need to be light. It can be in a shipping container sitting physically next to a hospital and doesn't need to move. Um, and it's probably going to be a lot more expensive because it's funded by the state, most likely, or private if you're in the US. But the point being is that there's no such thing as a sort of holy grail of batteries. It's not one thing because it all techno- technologically it's all going to work in various different ways. But then also when you look at this balancing act more broadly, when you think about things like geopolitics, human rights, whether or not we should rush into using batteries, in which case we need to rely on places like China, we need to rely on these really problematic mines. But of course, it gets our um, gets us off fossil fuels faster. So suddenly you have to think about what is it you're trying to optimize? Are you optimizing for human rights? Are you optimizing for geopolitical peace? Are you optimizing for solving climate change? So on and so forth. So the bit at the end of the chapter, I sort of say if you had a little bag of coins and you had to sort of attribute your coins to the things that you care about, maybe you put five coins on climate change, three coins on human rights, whatever. It's 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 quite hard to suddenly think about how would you solve these problems or what, what decisions do you make? And I, I hope with that chapter, it kind of highlights the, the difficulties with moving forward with, with science and tech, but also why it's so important that more people know what what's going on. Because if you care about something that you think people in power don't care about, your coins don't count, right? It's only the coins of those that are actually making decisions um, and the values that they have. So that's kind of the the balancing act, shall we say, that's, that's true of all tech, but highlighted in that chapter. And it's completely intersectional because when we talk about, yes, these batteries are helping us get off fossil fuels, but the process in which we are getting the ingredients for earbuds or batteries and things like that is very toxic for the environment. And there's the human rights aspect. And then everything is much more hurting the global South with anything with the environment. So while it may be benefiting the global North to get these new technologies, it's actually still worsening the lives of people in the global South. There's also this argument that maybe the governments aren't capable of regulating. And so the industry has to regulate itself, which will they? There's so many ethical issues. It's very fascinating your work. I'm excited for the book. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I'm I'm glad to hear you you say that because I think that's the, I I always think that's the missing piece when, um, when books come out about science and tech. I mean, if you look at popular science in general, the vast majority of it is very, explainy it's very it's normally quite positive about science you know sort of scientism sort of feels about it and I'm not I'm not saying I'm anti-science of course but we need to be able to be better at working out how to wrestle with these issues how to ask questions how to bring in various different topics that might feel like they're contradicting each other because yeah that's the reality this stuff is hard there isn't you know if we knew how to solve x y and z we would have solved it but you know these things are complex and it's only by trying to pull together all these different ideas the politics of things the money behind things the structures of capitalism behind things as well as the just how does the tech work and how is it funded and how is science done that might seem like a really overwhelming thing but in my mind, it's like, well, it's more useful to try and map a system even crudely than to just explain crudely how something works. That's not as useful. And, and I also think not as interesting. I find systems really fascinating, but not everybody's there with me. But, you know, that is how you are able to open up ethical conversations much more easily is by laying out the kind of basic nodes 
of a system or of a map of something um, and letting people then explore it for themselves as opposed to just trying to, you know, here's all the information you possibly need about how this works, then go work out the politics yourself. I mean, that's just not, that's not a thing. And just quickly as well, you mentioned ethics in the, the AI chapter, which maybe you're, you're maybe going to ask specifically about, but I bring up the really famous ethics problem uh, that people talk about what to do with AI, which is the trolley problem, um, which you're nodding, I'm assuming you've kind of come across. I mean, most people who have read anything on AI or even slightly on AI ethics will probably have come across the trolley problem, which is the whole thing around you have a, a trolley or a train going along the track and it's going to kill one, uh, is it going to kill five people? If you're standing in this track, you can pull a lever and it moves on to another track and it kills just one person. You know, do you pull the lever? And this is a this problem has been talked about a lot with respect to self-driving cars about how do you code in ethics um i, I did inverted commas for code in by the way um <laughs> code in <laughs> ethics for uh, for self-driving cars so that it can you know make decisions and so on and so forth and it's it's almost been positioned as this like we need to solve ethics because we need it in order to kind of do tech, right? We can't have self-driving cars until we solve the trolley problem. And it's like, first of all, no, like people have been trying to think about these problems for years and years and years. I mean, philosophy is certainly not new. And second of all, the trolley problem was originally put forward by a researcher who was thinking about health ethics. I mean, these, as we know, because of COVID, these questions, these problems happen all the time um, in hospitals and various other places uh, in society. So I think even just the idea of, discussions about ethics and technology it feels like some people are talking about it like this is new thing that we need to be talking about because tech has got to the point that we should start considering ethics and you're like if you've not been thinking about it until now it's it's I don't want to say it's too late because we, we need to be talking about it but it's it's not new and these kind of problems are not just fun discussion points at a conference about AI it's things that we need to be wrestling with at the point of design um, and at the point of funding and all sorts as opposed to oh we've got self-driving cars what do we do now if it's gonna you know kill one person versus five we should probably try and solve this age-old philosophy problem that's been going around for years do you know what I mean to be fair I actually learned it from Netflix a good place yes but I, I, I actually <laughs> speak about that specific uh, 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 show actually in the batteries chapter uh, gets uh, uh, pulled out great great show epic <laughs> show yeah <laughs> Could you talk a little bit more about the artificial t- intelligence side? And I guess what's kind of interesting is sort of who kind of is it's not just the kind of the hype around the technology, but the sort of how how that sort of discussion is framed and how the kind of ethical discussions framed as well. Yeah. And I think what was particularly interesting about your artificial intelligence chapter was that sort of focus on the process of making it and kind of how it's made. Um, and, and again, it sort of comes back to decisions, right? That That seems like. Um, yeah. kind of what's right at the centre of this and, and, and in a way it sort of suggests that hype's a kind of way of sort of obscuring decision making but That's yeah I, right. think, I feel like AI is kind of a, a, a particularly good example of that I guess. Yeah you know you've definitely um, summarised that chapter probably better than I could. Um, yeah the, the subtitle of the AI chapter is decision making on tap and I kind of make the argument in the chapter that it seems that what we're trying to do with AI is to automate decision making. And that's kind of what it is, whether it's a factory, you know, moving things along a line, should it go left or right, depending on the color of it, for instance, all the way through to some of the more controversial recent um, uses of um, artificial intelligence where, you know, it's been judges are using it as a, as a tool for helping sentencing, making decisions. Right? This idea of um, decision making on tap, automated 
is decision making. Really interesting about this idea of othering and also about responsibility and also about feeling of hopelessness. Um, so what I mean by that is if you I think you can sort of summarize all of these themes by looking at the um the the hyped up narrative that I mentioned earlier, robots are going to steal your job. So if you take that headline or that idea, it obviously others the technology to being this thing over here, this robot that's coming to take your job, very similar narratives used for immigrants, for instance, this othering idea that we've you, you read about a lot um, in terms of humans trying to do that to things that they don't want to see as their own and can treat a certain way. It also has touches on themes of responsibility because it talks about the robot coming to steal your job. So suddenly if you're thinking about, well, whose responsibility is it to do anything about it? It's like, well, I better protect my job or we better shut down the robots. But actually, if you think about what that headline's really saying, it's saying corporate executives or government officials or whoever it is are making active decisions to replace human labor with automated systems in the name of profit or time saving or money making or whatever it is. And so suddenly if you reframe that or basically just say it in a different way, it's the same thing. Responsibility completely shifts away from being this your job, so it's your responsibility or the robot, the thing over there, to suddenly being the people that are making the decisions who are in power. So the way we talk about AI has to be rooted in thinking about how are we positioning who's responsible and so on and so forth. And then the final point around this decision-making or the lack of needing to do it because the AI is doing it. I think this, again, this idea of like robots going to do a job and this general idea of like the AI is coming and the singularity and all this stuff, it makes people feel very helpless, right? It's this idea of like, I can't do anything about this, particularly if you don't work in the field. Um, it's like, you know, I'm going to lose my job eventually, or these algorithms are going to be making decisions at a governmental level that I don't understand. I can't see, I don't have any power. But the reality of what's going on in the AI space is that people are making decisions to use it. They are choosing to use this technology for various different means. Sometimes that decision is totally fair enough, other times not so. But the point is, is that it's not out of control. You know, we control, <laughs> the people who build it control what data they use. The people who build it choose which models they use. The people that employ it choose to employ it. The people who pay for it choose to pay for it and so on and so forth. So there is decision-making at so many different levels. This is where I think hype and the way we talk about technology is so, so important to look at. I mean, God, it sounds so obvious. The pen is mightier than the sword. Words matter. We know this stuff. And yet it doesn't seem, we don't seem to be um, in general critical about how we talk about it. Of course, you know, it's it's becoming a lot more, you know, people are saying these things now. I'm not the first person to make this point and it's getting better. But even just the idea of repeating the robots are going to do their job is an easy thing to repeat without really thinking about what you're saying and what the potential repercussions are of that particular narrative being said over and over and over again. And, you know, I don't see things as a conspiracy. I don't think there's anybody, you know, um, saying, let's keep using this narrative to stop people asking questions. But the reality is, if you keep uh, having this narrative said over and over again, you're just going to make people feel helpless and feel that they can't do anything and not sign petitions and not vote in people uh, mm -hmm. that are going to make change and not change where they spend their pounds and their dollars depending on what companies are doing and so on and so forth like we we all there is such thing as power uh with with people so that's kind of why i wanted to really do it specifically with ai because it feels like kind of the most prescient technology that's suffering from these blinkering narratives at the moment and 
but it's relevant for so many different areas of science tech and hopefully that chapter kind of tries to outline how you can spot shifts of uh, responsibility othering the use of othering um in narratives and specifically like making people feel that it's being done to them as opposed to it's a thing that people are making decisions about for sure there's a lot of responsibility in us as storytellers to talk about those things and to drive that narrative so i think specifically actually talking about marketing and marketers and, and communicators of all sorts there's there's a funny kind of it's not irony, but there's a there's a a strange sort of people who do marketing and do communications of any kind know that it's really really powerful. I mean, words and narratives and storytelling has power. It does stuff. People pay to <laughs> for stuff to happen as a result of marketing, right? But at the same time, I think that there's sometimes a bit of dissonance around this idea of like, well, it doesn't really matter how we position technology in our advert. We just need to look innovative and and have tech and have the SEO and have the words um, pop up and you know, it sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but I think that dissonance is, is something that as people who work in the communications industry need to think about a little bit more because it's not enough to just mention tech or to make sure it's part of the discussion or, or whatever it is and go, oh, this is an important thing, we should include it. It's then going, well, how do we include it in a way that makes sense? How do we include it in a way that we're not as, particularly if you're working with brands, brands are powerful, right? Brand, brand voices are quite loud and they have quite big audiences. So what are you putting out there? What are you saying? And this was something that I noticed a lot when I, I worked in corporate innovation at Ogilvy because you know, I used to get a lot of emails from the account uh, managers saying, oh, my, my client wants to do something innovative. So can you, you know, <laughs> get us something techy to put in our campaign? Hashtag, hashtag, and, hashtag. Yeah. And it, it would be, you know, and, and this was, back, I mean, to be fair, this was back in it was 2014, 2015. So, so I, disruptive it, was the key word then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, God, we called our, our podcast Science Disrupt, right? So, you know, absolutely. <laughs> that was, I mean, it's still, still being used, that, that kind of narrative, but we always felt really uncomfortable, both because we were like, that's not the point. But also because we're like, why are you doing that? And of course, we know the answer is because we know that it's good for companies to look innovative, regardless of the reality of what's happening behind closed doors. And of course, now even the idea of innovation and, and being innovative is being questioned. And there's a brilliant book by Andrew Russell and Lee Vinsel that I highly recommend everybody to read called The Innovation Delusion. You should totally get them on your podcast as well. They're, they're awesome. So I guess the question is, like, how can we actually go about sort of talking about things in a responsible way. I suppose we're kind of looking for something like responsible hype. And I think that's something you've um, written about before. So is that sort of a way out of some of these problems? And like, you know, what can we do with that? Like, how can we responsibly hype? I think that the first thing to know when I try and think about what it means to responsibly hype is to be conscious of the fact that hype is purely only an attention tool. It's not an explaining tool. It's not an understanding tool. It's not a nuanced tool. It is purely attention grabbing. And so what, what are you grabbing that attention for? And what means are you using to do that? Are you deliberately trying to deceive people because you know it will get their attention, in which case, obviously, a bit problematic? Is the thing that you're grabbing attention for, does it really need it? right now? Does it really need it in the spaces that you're trying to grab it? You know, I think we, and this is not just marketers, I say this a lot to, to founders of startups as well, because they're obviously all wanting to know how to get their startup into Wired or whatever. And I'm going, do you really need your startup in Wired? Is this a fame ego thing? Or like, why does it need to be in Wired? So you can put 
the like logo on your investor deck like is that it because that's not good enough you know (laughs) of course it is but that's not a good enough reason and I think responsibility has to not just be about pointing the finger at the daily mail and going they've said that coffee is going to cure cancer that's irresponsible reporting well it's also irresponsible to put out a press release and saying our AI is going to save the world or whatever like that that is irresponsible too even though you're just using the same narratives as everyone else even though you're just jumping on a bandwagon even though you're you're desperately really want the attention it's about working out how to do that in a way that isn't going to propagate problematic narratives and the two little tips I always give is first of all work out your system story as opposed to um trying to tell this problem solution story everything you do fits into a system so work out what that system looks like before you go here's a problem here's a solution without being like look at all these problems we cause in the wake of it, you know, work out what that system story is. And second of all, make sure you know how to separate uh, mission and vision from actual reality of what's going on. Those are really quick tips, I think, in terms of how you responsibly hype, because it's, I get it, we have a job to do and we have to get money and attention and so on and so forth, but there's no reason to do it in a way that's making things worse for people. We definitely saw it back in June, July, and August with all the performative Black Lives Matter and then not actually doing anything, creating a mission of inclusion. We see it every June or July, depending on what country you're in, with pride washing. And it comes back to the company culture. So it's as much about culture or more so than it is about the actual tech. Yeah. Or the fact that mostly white young men are building this future and training these algorithms. It's interesting for sure to be covering. Well, I think it's also as well, also taking a bit of stock of like the power that your narrative has, right? Because I think instead of going like, oh, we can get attention for this. This is, you know, let's use it for X and let's use this narrative to do Y. It's like going, well, actually, what kind of narratives do we want to put out? What do we, what, I don't want to be like, it doesn't, I don't want to sound flippant and be like, use your narratives for good, use your power for good. But because everyone has a different definition of what good is for a start. But because also it's going, I think there's a, there's a laziness sometimes around these kind of narratives put out. It's like just using the standard ones that already exist that are palatable and so on and so forth and sometimes that works but also sometimes it's just I don't know fades into the background because everyone's going oh you're saying the same as everybody else it's not even working so I think it's it's not just about responsibility it's also about going is this hype even going to work (laughs) because is it even true and I think especially nowadays I mean a lot of the things I've been thinking about a lot is around system systems journalism and how do you tell system stories and and trying to tell everyone that systems are exciting and interesting because I find them exciting and interesting trying to convince editors to let me write stories that don't have some character at the center and a profile but instead has a system at the center and that's a quite hard thing to do but actually I think this last year with um, coronavirus has I don't know really elevated the system story you can't tell the story of like you know why we don't have toilet roll in Sainsbury's without explaining supply chains you can't tell the story of what's going on at the moment in Texas with um everyone so many people not having power without talking about the politics and privatization so you know I think there's a hunger for nuance and a hunger for system stories and hypey you know, sounds too good to be true, just so stories. I don't think they're they're even that effective as much anymore. And are kind of capturing people that either don't have the time or the inclination or or whatever to want to dig a little bit deeper. And so it does start to feel like quite dark in the sense that you're kind of going for people that perhaps don't have the ability or whatever to think a bit deeper. And it's like, well, is that really who you want to be talking to? And if so, surely that feels like you're kind of conning. 
even though you're not, because there's an element of truth, you know, so it's this kind of, there's a balance here around not just responsibility, but like actual effectiveness and, and role that organizations are playing in the global sort of information culture that we have nowadays. And then really, even though hype, you've distinguished hype from fake news or disinformation, hype feeds into and starts fake news because look, I, I'm seeing it certain family members on my timeline around what's happening in Texas right now. Right. And right. Cause yeah. it's a complex issue and Absolutely. people are like, Oh, it's because they have solar panels with snow on it. No, that's actually a fake meme. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, hype itself. I mean, the way that I kind of think about it is hype is a hyped up narrative, a narrative that has been uh, worded in such a way that it's likely to catch on or has had a lot of promotion put behind it or whatever um, is oversimplified to the extent that it gets spread much easier because of the simplicity of the idea and so on and so forth. But yeah, I mean, there's a difference between putting out a line that is categorically false versus something that can be construed as true or can be true in certain contexts. I mean, the whole the problem with hype is that when it's taken out of context or it's believed in its entirety without the understanding that there is a broader system around it, that's when you get misunderstanding or people believing the wrong thing, so on and so forth. So I want, and the reason I really wanted to make the focus on hype specifically is because not that I don't think disinformation, misinformation is important. There's a real power in hype. These things that can't be removed because they're not untrue. Things that can be said that are, you know, a lot of people are like, get frustrated with hype because they're, it feels distasteful. It feels a bit like, oh, for God's sake, that's, come on, that's not really what's going on. You're not really doing anything wrong, really, by putting it out there. And especially when you're saying, well, we're just trying to get money for this thing that we're doing, you know? So I think that there's something more to be said about how we manage how we do this that you can't, you know, some people say to me, can you not just get an algorithm to like stop hype in the same way we can get an algorithm to stop fake news? I'm like, first of all, we're rubbish at stopping faking news, fake news, sorry. And second of all, you know, do you, does, is robots are going to do your job? Not, is that not allowed? Are we not allowed to say that anymore? Is that fake? Is that untrue? Not really. So um, it's more about a reckoning of, ourselves and both how we act as consumers of information as well as people who put out information you know even just resharing a post is you know you are doing comms of a sort even if you don't work in the industry so it's it's I think it's more about reckoning with our own personal roles from both sides no matter who we work for and what we do for a living. Um, I was just wondering if there are any like examples of kind of where hype is effective or useful I guess so you kind of mentioned the tension and I guess you know what what hype if it's used properly or where narratives if they're used properly are, are useful is that they can kind of direct or instruct people's attention or draw your attention to certain things that might not have been noticed I was was just interested to hear your take on kind of examples of that that you've seen so kind of where hype's been used sort of effectively or where it actually has made a sort of positive impact I guess yeah for sure I mean I I don't don't specific examples of ads or whatever to hand but I think that there's sort of a couple of different buckets for instance public Health announcements, for instance, would be one example where public health bodies have to put out what might sometimes feel like quite extreme messages to get people to pay attention. Actually, we've seen this with um, obesity campaigns. Um, the I think they've come from Cancer Research UK, actually, more so than UK government, where you have these ads that are essentially saying, you know, obesity 
causes cancer um and it causes a lot of issues around fat shaming and and so on and so forth but at the same time it's like well it is one of the leading causes or risk factors around cancer and so there's a responsibility of charities that are working to work on that to get that message out so how do you capture people's attention you say something that feels uh, you know so you could argue that hype is being used in a positive way i mean god it was having to be used around getting people to wash their hands and so on and so forth you know we had to put out messages that were capturing attention and getting people to stop and and look whether it was the design of the ad the way it was said who voiced it whatever but you can also think about hype being positive i mean it really depends on what you see as worthy right because some people would say public health uh, I, I don't want public health uh, messages out there you know don't I, I'm not living in a nanny state for instance some people would say that that's not positive but another thing that I would I would say is perhaps fair use of hype is when you're trying to get funding for things and you're doing something quite complex it's very difficult to explain and you don't have very much time to get somebody to even just reply to your email just capture that attention in the first instance, whether it's applying for a government grant, whether it's a charity that's trying to get a private investor, whether it's, um, you know, trying to get public to chip in for things, so on and so forth. I mean, it's people don't have time to understand the nitty gritty of things in the very first instance. So it's like, how do you get people to stop scrolling or not delete the email or, or whatever it is, not walk past without looking at the billboard? So really, I guess what I'm trying to say is it really comes back to like what's behind the need for hype. You know, why why do you need the attention in the first place? What's the kind of public good for it? Um, and so on and so forth. I would argue that there's plenty of different types of organizations and companies and so forth that I personally am like, well, they really don't need the attention. If Amazon's using hype, I'd be like, oh, for God's sake, they certainly don't need it. Although to be fair, they don't really use hype because they don't need it. That's the point. And I don't know, it opens up some interesting points as well around, you know, so for instance, if you look at like placebo effect, right? Um, some people would argue that giving people a placebo without them knowing if it makes them feel better is a good thing. Other people would say you just shouldn't lie, full stop. You shouldn't give people something. You shouldn't deceive people, right? As a doctor, you shouldn't give your patient something that you know is ineffective in terms of it's what it's meant to do. It's a sugar pill or whatever it is, but it is effective mentally or whatever for the person. I would argue that hype, you can look at hype in the same way. Is it fair game to kind of lead people into believing something a bit extreme about something this thing is absolutely amazing or this thing is absolutely terrible in order to get them to take some kind of action if that action is fair play is good for them for society so on and so forth or should we not have any hype at all and we should just use you know pure information and make sure everybody's entirely informed and they can make decisions and we hope that everyone would make decisions that would be beneficial for them and society as a whole it's, it's a similar sort of value ethical judgment that you have to wrestle with when you're thinking about when hype is fair game but for me it's like just if you're not lying <laughs> for a start just don't lie don't say something that's going to be very easily deceived as something that's untrue or it's going to be deceived as something that's leaving out a big part of the story that's the first step for sure yeah i so i, I kind of wonder actually when you were sort of talking about like hype in sort of different contexts if actually a lot of the problems kind of come from where hype sort of bleeds across so so say if you're a startup one minute you're talking to investors and you're trying to raise cash the next minute you're trying to push a product on millions of people and right. if, if that kind of story is if you're sort of telling the same story and saying the same things then confusion is bound to happen right is that is that kind of something yeah. that you've, you've sort of seen and a, a danger that's out there yeah for sure I mean I think there's if we're talking about startups specifically 
they are going to change their comms depending on who they're talking mm-hmm. to. And that's the right thing to do. I mean, that's what any comms um, person worth their salt would say. It's, you know, you make sure you're building the narrative specific to those or, you know, know your audience, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the problem can be that when it's pulled out of that context or there's a lack of information given in one context because the other context didn't need it, for instance. Um, and then it's kind of seen as this, you know. So, I mean, a simple example for me would actually be startups, for instance, using so for instance say you're an agriculture startup and you're saying we are going to feed the world this is like a super common super common overarching mission of agriculture startups is around feeding the world even if what they're doing is i don't know coming up with a cruelty-free pesticide or they've got a camera that they put in barns to monitor the health of cows because ultimately at the very end of what they're doing they're feeding into a system and the whole point is to try and feed the world better um, more sustainably blah 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 so it's like our our mission is to feed the world even though what we're doing is making cameras for barns right using that narrative in certain contexts is not terrible you know if you're trying to capture the attention for instance of a mainstream general media journalist and you make a really complicated specific piece of technology but that does play a really important role in this really broad system then you do some somehow you need to be able to tell this general mission story right you have to be able to make that argument whereas if you were in a a room full of vcs who are all working in the agriculture field excuse the pun and understand how things work and understand the fact that there's a market out there for cameras and barns you're not going to go in and talk about feeding the world right you're going to talk about i don't know making the image processing better for industrial farms now if you take those two narratives and put them alongside each other and you don't know anything about the field and you go well hang on a minute you said you're going to be feeding the world but actually what you're doing is just providing for corporate farms you end up with this very muddy, difficult thing that um, can so easily be misconstrued in many different ways. You know, oh, they're actually evil. They've been lying to us, but they're not really about feeding the world. Or on the other hand, yeah, they're about feeding the world. They're the most amazing people possible. And it's like, well, actually, no, they're not really supplying like smallholder farms or like people that really need food. It's these big, expensive industrial farms that already make tons of money and it's just helping them profit a bit more. So do you see what I mean? It's you can kind of lose this broader system nuance by simply taking two um, narratives that make sense for this audience in that particular um, instance, but has started to kind of make its way <laughs> through the internet to other people or, or whatever else. So, it, you know, it's difficult because when, you know, startups or companies will say to me, God, how you can't control something once you've put it out, which is true. But at the same time, I think it's important to try and think about, well, what is it you're saying and how is that going to be perceived in different contexts? And how can you ensure that somehow somewhere you're telling the full story of what you do, whether it's on your website, whether it's, you know, fuller pitches that you're putting out. And also, do you even need to do the whole we're feeding the world thing if really what you're trying to do is get funding from specific investors? Why does anybody really need to know that broader theme, that broader mission? Oh, because your founder wants to be on the cover of Wired. Okay, cool. That's a different thing. (laughs) And full circle. Right. So I have to ask just briefly, what are you most excited about right now? that are in the hype or not? And Mm. what are you most terrified about right now? Oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) That's a big question. What am I most excited about? I mean, gosh, I, (laughs) the beauty of doing a PhD is you, um, you just get to read for quite a lot for the first year, basically, at least that's how I'm seeing it, making it sound like very flippant. But anyway, I'm spending a lot of time reading textbooks. So, um, 
I'm actually not following as much of the general goings on in science and tech. You know, I'm reading books about performance and science, for instance. So uh, there's this book called Science on Stage, and it's all about how do, how do people perform uh, either being a scientist or perform being an expert or perform being a critic. And I'm finding a lot of these kind of um, introductory STS, the field I'm in, science, technology studies, um, texts, really, really fascinating. So and I, I re- every single one I read, I think, I wish more people in the science and tech field more generally would read these texts. So I would, I would encourage anyone to Google science, technology studies or STS as a field and type in intro to and get a syllabus and just look at the, the texts that are on there because I'm finding it, I'm excited by how my mind is being expanded in terms of how I think about how science and tech is done by reading sociology and philosophy and history of science. So that's probably what I'm most excited about at the moment, mainly because my head is very deep in it. In terms of what I'm most worried about, I mean, it sounds cliche to say like, how our government are managing the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but it can, I, I do feel, I, I live in London, I'm actually moving to Scotland in two weeks and I feel good about that because I feel I feel more positive about how things are being managed in Scotland than how they're being sure. managed in England. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't have confidence in, I don't have confidence in the government <laughs> in terms of what they're doing from it, from many different angles. And I feel that the kind of priorities of the conservatives is not really in line with my own values or what I think is best for the country so I there's an element of even though we're seeing vaccines are being effective we're getting them through society that you know seem to be hitting targets so who knows whether that's hype or not mm-hmm. there's a long way to go and I'm very concerned about the rumors at the moment of opening up things at the start of March it just seems totally mad to me and I'm worried about how how people are going to be able to manage repeated uncertainty for a long time, perhaps for a whole other year, whilst also not being very confident in those that are leading us. It'd be a bit different if we had confidence in who was in charge. So yeah, I suppose I, I still have a lot of worry and anxiety about that. Also, just a brief one, I've seen they've now launching this, it's going to be an agency that uh, gets to fund science and tech that is high risk, you know, likely to fail Oh, you know, it's kind of like the Dominic Cummings moonshot factory thing. But the recent news about it, and I haven't read enough into it to work out the intricacies of this. But from what I can gather, it seems there's not going to be that much oversight and they'll be sort of relatively immune to like freedom of information requests. And I think that's going to be problematic considering the fact that science and tech is already to some degree pretty shut out from a lot of people's understanding. It's not necessarily that things are not being published, it's that people don't necessarily understand how it all works. So the idea of hiding information, not necessarily hiding, but not giving access to information in an environment when we're trying to push for science to be far more open, to me, seems a little bit worrying. But I need to look into a bit more to see if I've not been swept up in the hype of a newspaper headline there (laughs) yeah I need to look up in that but in your first worry is tech an answer it's interesting that you're talking about things that your biggest worry doesn't involve tech or does it or tech is everything every whether it's a billion dollar app for a track and trace that doesn't work (laughs) right I mean but the thing is is tech is not tech is not I mean, it's, it's, it sounds cliche to say this. Tech is is just a tool. It's how we use it, right? So I don't I don't think that tech is inherently good or bad. I think that it's how we build it, how we fund it, how we manage it, 
who makes decisions about it, what power dynamics come as a result of it existing in society and then how we deal with that, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, I think the tech itself is just a tool. It's just a thing. It's a thing that gets developed. I think it's how we develop it and how we use it that is more of concern or of interest and of relevance in terms of how we think about what we talk about when we talk about tech right <laughs> yeah definitely perfect segue <laughs> yeah I, I, I guess the one thing especially just just to kind of end that's interesting about so I, I, I agree I think you can sort of say it's value neutral but there's something interesting in how technology kind of demands or like requires hype it kind of leads to a sort of mm-hmm. uh obs- not not it kind of obscures things itself and it kind of requires sort of a level of explanation or a level of hype or a level of narrative that that is always kind of going to be conflictual and something that has to be picked apart i guess it's the complexity right and it's it i think complexity always makes it harder for people to unpick a context in a way and, and that that's kind of yeah. where we need to sort of be aware of hype, not as a good or bad thing, but as a thing that's always going to be growing up around technology and a world with complex systems, I suppose. Well, I mean, tech is not, yeah, when I say it's value neutral, I don't mean that it's separate and objective and is not built by humans. And, you know, this is one of the core things that's talked about in science technology studies is this idea that like the social construction of technology and co-production, all these kind of um, terms. And it's just this idea that tech influences and is impacted by society and society influences and is impacted by technology. And it's it sounds like such the most basic, obvious thing to say in the world. But when you look at how tech is talked about, if you look at how we hype up tech, how we explain tech, all sorts of things, a lot of the time that fundamental idea is sorely lacking, particularly when we talk about, you know, objectiveness and rationality and logic. And it's like, no. Tech is built by humans. It is a social thing. You know, there's embedded in all of our different technologies and so on and so forth is the where it's situated when it came about and the communities and societies and so forth that it's in and is being shaped by constantly every single day. Again, I don't think it's the the screen in front of me's fall it's just a bit of metal that's when you have to look at the kind of the social stuff around it as opposed to the thing itself but part of that is even looking inside and going why is this i don't know wire next to that wire is that purely uh because it makes it work better okay what do you mean by work better why was that decision made who made that decision you know it's, it's, it's fractal you can go deep and deep and deep and deep but the point is if you're not doing that at all and you're just seeing tech as this separate objective thing that's just a logical object that appeared then you're sorely missing out on understanding how the world works frankly I think that's probably a yeah a nice place to leave it a nice conclusion but I think what what I kind of really like about this conversation it sort of sets up some nice things for future episodes before we finish if you've got anything you want to promote where can people sort of find you online on Twitter sure um well yeah my book is uh, smoke and mirrors how hype obscures the future and how to see past it you can get it at all 
places, bookstores. I always try to encourage people to buy from independent bookshops, but you can you can get it on Amazon or anywhere else um, um, as well. No, that's <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. It's totally cool. Um, I just I, I've been supported by some really amazing independent bookshops, including Lighthouse sure. Books in Edinburgh, for instance. That and they and they deliver. And it's also going to be coming out in paperback in the US on the twenty second of June this year. Currently in the US, it's only available on Kindle audiobook. Don't ask me why. I don't really understand the book industry. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter just at Gemma Milne, Instagram, Gemma Milne Writer, websites there, all that jazz. Oh, and the podcast that I um, co-host is called Radical Science, and uh, we would love for you to come check us out as well. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, p- please do check that out. And um, we'll be back soon with some more episodes and some more really interesting conversations. So yeah, thanks for talking to us, Gemma. That's been thanks for having me. Thanks. thanks for setting the standard. Thanks for listening. And remember to follow us at underscore talk about tech. Check out the website, Talk About Tech Podcast. Uh, and obviously you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, wherever. But yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back next time with another episode. Keep in touch via Twitter. Our DMs are always open and we're happy to chat, talk ideas or, you know, any podcast ideas. So until next time, stay safe and goodbye.